Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are. And Lord, even as we just sang, there is no other Savior. As your word says, you alone are Savior. There is no other name under heaven by where we can be saved but you. I thank you that you are a mighty fortress. I thank you for the work that you did on the cross. I thank you for these precious saints here. And I beg of you today that you would help us to become more and more like you as a result of your word. Change us now, Lord. I I plead with you that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your law. And I beg of you that this church would be a sweet aroma to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let me ask you a couple questions as we start this morning. How can you tell the difference between a Los Angeles Dodgers fan and a San Francisco Giants fan? Okay, are there any Giants fans in here? Okay, oh, okay, there he is, front row, I like it. How you doing again? Good. And... um, But you can tell the difference, well, primarily by what uniform they have on, right? Um, which team gets to the postseason and loses? Um, listen, just on a side note, I'm from Philadelphia, and uh, Philadelphia sports teams um, always will let your heart down every year. So I'm 47, and I've, uh, I've, I've been in pain, pain. So anything I, any smack I talk on Los Angeles, trust me, I, I feel the pain. But you think about Los Angeles and San Francisco, back to the point, right? You can tell the difference based upon um, what jerseys they wear. If you were to go down to the Dodger Stadium when they play on each other, you can tell who's a fan, right? By whose jersey has uh, mustard and ketchup and other stuff thrown in it um, versus who's a Dodgers fan, right? Um, many times when I've, I, well, not many times, when, I, when I've been down there, you know, I've seen um, San Francisco Giants fans being pelted with stuff by Dodgers fans. I mean, I know Dodgers fans are always warm and greet, you know, happy people and everything. But, but you can tell the difference, right? You think about the difference between the Yankees and Boston Red Sox fans, right? There is not much of a difference. Uh, you know, they both are rude. Um, I'm joking. All right, all right. I'm from Philadelphia again. But I say all that, you can tell the difference. There are some clear lines. When you think of colors, right, you know, you can tell the difference between some colors, whereby other colors, you can't tell the difference. I don't know much difference between any shade or hue of blue. I don't know, like tur- or turquoise or any of those different colors. But between red and yellow, I can tell the difference. Why do I bring all this up? is often, I think, what is blurred is what a true Christian is. Often those who say they are Christians blur the lines of who or what a true Christian should be and how they should talk and act. My heart for you, and I know it's Pastor Jay, the elders, the deacons, all the leadership here, is that your colors would be clear. That your banner would be clear. I remember just a side note here, a number of years ago, I had the privilege of getting LASIK eye surgery. And prior to getting laser eye surgery, um, when I looked at the eye chart, I only could see the top letter. My wife actually doubted me at first. 
She's like, John, you really can't see anything else? I said, babe, come here. Come, come into the appointment with me. And I said, and I, and I said, and I just tried to read it. Only can read the top letter. But once I had that surgery by God's grace, I remember the next day I woke up and, and I was, I was like, hey, James, can you see that? Can you see that? And I, and I was going out there and I was, try, I was just reading numbers off buildings and just because I was so excited because I could see clearly, right? My eyes could now see there is a difference. It wasn't blurred. And tragically, in Christianity, those who say they're Christians or those who say things about Jesus, whom they seemingly represent, it's blurred. In light of what we studied last week of the greatness of who Jesus is, my plea today and my question for you is, is his greatness enough for that to change our line? Our, and our lives, excuse me. And is our lives or are our lives clearly representing Jesus? And I want you to turn up in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul was radically transformed. Paul was a persecutor of believers. He was a blasphemer. He was a hater of anything that had to do with Jesus. And the Lord saved him. The Lord regenerated him. And Paul couldn't do anything but preach Christ, proclaim Christ, live for Christ. And when he wrote to these churches, when he wrote to believers, his passion was for them to be consumed by Christ. His passion was that they would walk in a manner worthy of their calling. You know, when I was thinking about just preparing for these sermons, and, and, and it's hard to know what every church needs without being there, knowing the strengths, the weaknesses of any particular body, but this is what I know for any of us as believers is that we, we need and to have a high view of Christ. And if Christ is that elevated in our lives, then what we should do, what we should desire is to run to be like him. And so how can you and I clearly represent Jesus? And please follow along as I read verses 1 and 2. And Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. How can you and I honor the Lord in light of his greatness? We can imitate God as beloved children. And secondly, we can walk in love. There are two clear mandates in this passage. And my hope today is to walk through these mandates. And, and the prayer is that it would spur us on to be more like Christ. And secondly, it would cause us to evaluate, am I clearly imitating Christ? What picture do you give the Burbank about who Jesus is? The book of Ephesians is very symmetrical. I love symmetry. When I, when I come into a house, if I see anything that's unsymmetrical, it kind of bothers me a little bit. I don't know how you are in that, but, it, but my, and, um, and so I, if my wife hangs the picture, she, she's, and uh, it's not just perfectly, you know, straight, right? I don't know what it is, 
But I walk in like, oh. And my wife is fantastic. I'm not trying to dog my wife. But uh, it's just one of those things, right? And that's why part of the reason I love the book of Ephesians. It's symmetrical, right? The first three chapters are about our position in Christ. And the, the next three chapters, four, five, and six, are about our practice. And so this is where we find ourselves in. And so what does Paul call us to do? He says, first, be an imitator of God. The command there is become. And it's the very first word in this verse which shows emphasis. Paul wanted these Ephesian believers to become something. What did he want them to become? An imitator of God. That word imitate, it comes from the Greek word where we get mimic. Have you ever mimicked anyone before? Or you've heard of someone who's mimicked someone before, right? And what you do is you try to represent them. When you're a child or you think about your children, I don't know why it's so hilarious, but they love to imitate you. They, they like to mock you, right? I, I say a lot of words wrong. When, I'm just joking. I say it the right way. It's, it's, I'm just, I say wooder. I say radiator tournament. Some of the words from Philadelphia, right? And so people then sometimes imitate my accent um, from the East Coast, right? And the, there, there's an imitation there. What Paul says is, is he wants them to mimic God, to imitate God. Now, I could look at this verse. We can look at this verse and be like, okay, Paul, that makes sense. Good to go. We're, we're on it. But I, as I was sitting here and I was contemplating what his command was, there were several questions that came to my mind. And very simply, when he says imitate God, who is God? Now, I, I know that may be such a simple question. You're like, John, duh, it's, it's, it's right there in the Bible. But when you think about what our culture says about God, the line is often blurred and people don't know who God is. For example, uh, in, in light of the recent um, Supreme Court um, legislation on this past weekend, uh, on past Friday, we talked about um, the Roe versus Wade. I, I saw signs about people protesting in D.C. and someone held up a sign that says, God is a woman and she is angry. Is this the God that Paul wants us to imitate? There are many gods. You think about the religions of the world. Some religions have numerous gods. They're very polytheistic. And so the question is, what God is he talking about? Well, when you look in the scriptures and you look at what the Bible says, the Bible says there is only one God. There is no other when Isaiah wrote to the nation of Israel, and you began to read through Isaiah 40 on, and when Isaiah was challenging these Israelites on their affinity for other gods, often he would highlight that Yahweh is the only God. Specifically, the Ephesian readers would have been living in a culture where there are many gods. There were the Greek goddesses. There were the Greek gods. They would, have, they would have known about all these different gods. And yet, Paul says, imitate God. Theos. There is only one God. And this God they were to imitate is the one earlier that Paul says, who's rich in mercy. He's the same God earlier who says, 
that you have all your spiritual blessings from God the Father. There is only one God. That, that is the one we're supposed to imitate. Another question that came to mind as I was reading this and I began to go through the scriptures and, and, and I asked this question, okay, I'm supposed to imitate God and yet when you look at what the Bible says, it says the, this God of the Bible, he can't be compared to. Who can be compared to the Lord? And the answer is no one. And so I, I, I began to say, well, is this even possible then? How are we supposed to imitate God when he is above all and he's only God? Let me put an example. Back in the day, there was a commercial that came out. It was a Gatorade commercial. And when I say back in the day, it's back in the 90s. I know it's not that, you know, old, but it's just, but there was a commercial, and it was a Gatorade commercial, and, the, and it was, and you, you know the jingle, um, it was Be Like Mike. And the idea is that if you drank Gatorade, if you consumed the beverage of Gatorade, then all of a sudden you would now have a greater ability to be like Michael Jordan. So me in my high school years, you know, I tried to drink some Gatorade. Didn't that quite happen. Right? There, there are certain things about Michael Jordan that no matter how hard I tried, I could never be like Michael Jordan. I, I could never dunk a basketball on a 10-foot rim. Maybe a 6-foot, yeah, right? Barely, right? Off a trampoline, right? I, and, and I say all that to say is I could never achieve that. I could never grow to be 6-foot, six 6-tall, six right? I just did not have that in me. There was no growth hormones within Gatorade. To help me grow that height. But there are some things that you can imitate, right? Could I stick my tongue out when I play basketball like Michael Jordan? Sure. Could I practice some of my dribbling? Sure. My point was it, it, it was almost impossible to be and elevate my game, my basketball game, to that level purely from drinking Gatorade. When you think about what Paul says is Obviously, we can't imitate God in that we can never be all-powerful like him. There are certain attributes, there are certain characteristics of him that we can never achieve, no matter how hard we try. But there are, obviously, because he calls us to, there are certain attributes by which we can imitate. Sometimes in theology, we call them communicable or incommunicable attributes, attributes that, that we can um, live out that like the Lord. And this is what he's calling us to do. I know it's so simple in those questions I ask. But we are called to imitate God where we can imitate God. We are called to represent Yahweh where we can represent him. We are called daily to live our lives, to conduct ourselves, to imitate the Lord. Now, what should galvanize us to do that is the next phrase here in verse 1. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. This is a profound statement. You are, and Paul writes to the Ephesians, they are a child of God. Prior to salvation... 
They were an enemy of God, but now they are a friend of God. Prior to salvation, they were an adversary of the Lord. Now they are declared to be a child of God. I think about, I know some of you here are, are very big into adoption. And ad, what's so significant about adoption is that a, a child that has no biological ties to par, these two parents, now all of a sudden, because they are adopted, they now have all the same rights and privileges that a biological child should have. If you turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and look with me at verse 5. This is what it says about us. Those who are believers. You were, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the kind intention of his will. You, before the foundation of the world, were chosen And you were chosen to be adopted into his family. There are only two categories of people in all the world. Either you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil, right? Either your father's the Lord or your father's the devil. Either you're a believer or an unbeliever, the Bible says. And And Paul wrote to these Ephesian believers, you're adopted. Every privilege that a of a child of the heavenly father, you have them now. You've been bestowed with them. As you turn back with me to chapter 5, Paul doesn't just say that you're a child. He says you're a beloved child. The, the way that word beloved is this. When you think about a, a family that has one child, and this doesn't, well, I'll, I'll pause it, I'll say it for a moment. When you have one child, right, it, it, the parents just pour out all their love on that one child. And, and, and they, they envelop that child with care and compassion. That is the way this word is used here. As if you were the only child and the recipient of all the love the parents would bestow on an only child. This is who you are in the Lord's eyes. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And as you're turning to 1 John chapter 3, again, what should galvanize should spur, should contribute to your passion to imitate the Lord is because you are a beloved child. First John chapter 3 and verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. John as he's writing this, just like Paul, he never lost the wonder <coughs> excuse me, of the Father's love. 
That's why he says, how great a love. It wasn't just the casual love. It wasn't just a minimal love. There is a great love. And he bestowed on us. I am a knucklehead with a capital K, right? I, I, I am, I, I, I sadly, I, you know, I, I share with my family. I said, the only thing I'm perfect in is being a sinner. And, and I, I, I tell you, I can't believe that the God of all gods, who is pure, in fact, as the scripture says, he's so pure, he doesn't look up, he doesn't approve evil. This God who knows everything about me would still save me, would still be patient, would still be merciful, would still, what? Bring me into his family. And I'm sh- I know you're the same way. As you turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, in light of what he has done, imitate him. As a child, imitate your father. Right or wrong, in, in, in the physical sense, children often imitate their parents. I remember driving home one time from Placerita when I was a pastor there, and we were stuck at a red light. And my three-year-old daughter, who's very quiet, she was three at the time, all of a sudden she says, would you move cars? What are you doing not going? And I go, Jamie, she's taking after you, babe. I said, you know, I'm just kidding, right? But, and, but you can see, right, all of a sudden, she, she, and my daughter Ashlyn watched and listened as we drove the car. She imitated and she thought how we responded driving a car was the way she should respond. Dri- well, she wasn't driving, but you know, in a car. Right? I mean, think about this. Your children often root for the same teams that you root for. My children had no other choice. I know when we were here, some of you, I bought them Lakers jerseys. And I turned, I, my son Josh, when he was two years old, put a Lakers jersey on. I said, son, you have one choice. Take that thing off. I'm just I messed, right? Anyway, but I, and we were joked about that, but you often do that. So you think about this, you as a child, right? You want to imitate your father. So again, he is the only God. He's incomparable. So you only can imitate him in the way that you can. So specifically now, what is one clear way you can imitate him? And that leads us to the second mandate. Look with me here in verse 2. Walk in love. Not only to imitate God, you're to walk in love. This is an imperative. You are to walk. It's, it's Starting in chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul often used this word walk. It means to conduct yourself. It means to behave in a certain way. How are you to behave? How are you to conduct yourself? In love. Everything about you, the manner at which you think, you act, you behave, should be characterized by love. Excuse me, one second. I got tickled in my throat. I'm so sorry. Walk in love. How are we supposed to walk in love? I'm going to unpack that more, but, but I, I want to point to the model for a moment. 
and walk in love just as who? If you, if you look at the PowerPoint there, the model. Who is the model in verse 2? Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. That word love, it, it, it is a word <clears throat> that means you are looking out for the welfare of another. You're putting other people's needs first. This love is concerned about not what you get, but what you give. This love that Christ modeled is an unconditional love. <coughs> Excuse me. That means there is no conditions that had to be met in order for Jesus to love you. He says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And he gave himself up for us. How did Jesus put you first? Now think about this. If we are to walk in love, if we are to every day wake up and beg God that we would love, we got to know how to do that. And we look to Jesus to be able to know how to do that. How did he love us? He gave himself up for you. <clears throat> he gave himself up for you. Last week, we looked at in John 18 how Jesus was sovereign. He said, I am he. Everybody fell down on the ground. And so he established that the only way they could arrest him <clears throat> is if what? He let them. Jesus gave himself a voluntary sacrifice. <clears throat> I mean, this is, this is amazing. And you, you have heard this story hundreds and times. Every time you have communion here at Calvary, what are you supposed to do? Remember him. <clears throat> you have embraced this concept. So I ask as I talk about this, that again, you would ask the Lord to refresh your soul once again. He gave himself up for you. I, I recently I had a conversation. We had a Bible study at our house. And there was a gentleman there. He was talking about the gospel. And he's like, I, he's like wait, I, there, there is a God who is perfect. And, and, and wait, he, he died for us. And, and so we were trying to illustrate it. And one illustration that comes to my mind, and it's not a great, the best illustration. <laughs> so John, why are you saying that? Okay. But, but I say that, you know, I think about this. Can you imagine just there's a judge who's on the bench. And the judge is there on the bench. And, and the defendant comes up. And, and all the evidence is laid out. And the judge declares him guilty, 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 right? He drops the, um, what are you, the hammer, what, what else do you call it? The, uh, the gavel, okay. And he drops it. And then he, the judge gets off the bench and he comes down to the defendant and he says, you are guilty as charged. You deserve the death penalty. The evidence is clear as day. But the judge goes to the defendant and says, you are free. And the judge gives him his robe and puts his robe on this man. 
And the judge takes the clothes of the guilty person and puts it on him and says, I am going to take the punishment for you. The judge was innocent. He was not convicted of the crimes that the defendant was convicted of. There was no need for the judge to get down off the bench and come and do that. But the judge on his own volition says, I am going to go down there on my own volition as an innocent man and take the place of this man. And I am going to suffer the consequences of the judgment that I put on this man. I'm going to willfully take that. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus was tempted at all points as we are, yet without, you guys are on top of it, without sin. He was pure. He was innocent. He was blameless. And Jesus came down. Jesus, and I'm pausing here because I'm, I'm just thinking about the garden. When he was in the garden, And he knew what was before him when he was going to lay his life down on the cross. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. He knew he was going to face his father forsaking him on the cross. But he, but he, he went through anyway. And he gave himself up for you and I. As a substitute teacher, he took the rightful place of that teacher. He took our place. This is what is going on here. Paul goes on, he says, he gave himself up for us. It was an offering. It was a sacrifice. It wasn't a trivial matter. It was an actual sacrifice where Jesus gave his life and his blood was spilled out. This death on the cross wasn't just a figment of our imagination. He actually died. And it was a fragrant aroma. This is how we're supposed to love. This is how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. But are Christians conducting themselves like this? Now, what I'm not saying that that means we have to go die for other people. But greater love, right? Think about that. What the Bible says, has no one, you lay down your life. I think as Christians in America, so often we talk about love. It's the buzzword. God is love and he is and we, and we want to, oh, yes, oh, I want to love people. I want to love people. I want to love people. But do we understand, do, John, do you understand what that means? So again, I just want to clearly tell you that biblical love is not an emotion or good feeling about someone. It, it is the giving of oneself for their welfare. I'm repeating myself, but I'm doing this because I want us to make sure we understand. Divine love is unconditional love. It's love that depends entirely on the one who loves and not on the merit, attractiveness, 
or response of the one love. And any love that's like that is what we're called to do. Is this how we're conducting ourselves? See, when you love like this, what happens? You are clearly now representing Jesus. There is no blurring of the lines. <coughs> Excuse me. Hmm. Is this what the church is doing? Let's, let's consider this. And as I say, let's consider this. I, um, this is a challenge to my own soul. Men, those in you here who are husbands, it says to love your wives as how? I'm just messing with you. As how? There you go. You got it. As Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave himself. Say, it's unconditional. I know you love your brides. Right? Well, you don't say, you love your wife. And she is fantastic in your eyes. But every once in a while, there may be something that grates at you just a little bit, right? Maybe she doesn't respond to you the way you would like her to respond when you would like her to respond, right? And now you're thinking, oh, man, you know, I would like to get a back rub. When's the last time you gave me a back rub, and, and what we do, we find ourselves putting conditions on serving our, our wives, don't we? We got to kick that to the curb. Get it out, right? We got to give that, that the Heisman, right? My, my point is, right, we, we, we got to think in mind. Well, how, if, if we are to love like Jesus loved and his love was unconditional and I have to consider my bride, no matter whether she responds in kind or not, whether she says thank you or not, whether she does whatever or not, that is no condition for my call as a husband to love my wife. And I've had to ask her for forgiveness at times. I said, babe, I'm, I'm wrong. I, I'm not loving you like Christ loved the church. Forgive me. We think about this as just in general. Are we doing this? I, I, um, I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. Actually, on the, as you're going to 1 John chapter 3, you can stop in James 2. And, um, you know, think about this. I mean, you, look at me at verse 15 of James 2. And this is what James writes. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body. What use is that? There, there is a clear need, James says. You see someone without clothing. And they do not even have their daily sustenance. And the response is, go in peace. I'm hoping you're warm and filled. You have the resources available to help them. And you don't do anything about it. And James says, wait, 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 wait. If you have faith and it doesn't produce works, that, that, that it doesn't do that. There's something amiss here. Now, as you turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, again, think about this. 
and about this love. In verse 16 of 1 John 3, and John writes, we know love by this. Okay, here it is, by this. He's going to tell us what that word this is. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. (coughs) Excuse me. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. If we are to walk in love and love like Christ love, again, it's about the, the good of the other person. I'm so sorry. I have a tickle in my throat today. I'm so sorry. I'm tearing up up here. I wish I was tearing up for, for the greatness of the Lord more than for the tickle in my throat. I just, I, I, I'm so convicted about this. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We fight for our own rights, don't we? And yet here it is. Our model is someone who died for us and we are to help others. How are we doing in that? I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we think about this. How are we doing loving? Verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. Christ is glorious, awesome, mighty, and we are to imitate him. We are to walk in love. We are, to, we are specifically to walk as he walked. And he says here, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? (coughs) If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Do you guys follow what he's getting at here? When we scratch the back of those people who scratch ours, that there's no difference, right, from an unbeliever, from, an, from a Gentile. When you love your enemies, <clears throat> when you love those, regardless of whether they love you back, this is walking and imitating God. This is what we're called to. There should be no blurring of that line. (coughs) How does the world know that we are disciples of the Lord by our love for one another? We are to do this. We turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. And I really do apologize for my tickle in my throat. I don't want to take away at all. 
from this passage? Be imitators of the almighty God. He is your father. We are yours, child, if you are a believer. How you can best imitate him is by walking in love. And that love is concerned for the welfare of the other person. You know, as I'm looking around, I I don't know everything that has transpired here at this church over the last number of years. And I know many of you have walked through a lot of hard things. You've had a, oh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And you've just been hurt by many people. And I, I, it is hard to love them, is it not, sometimes? I, I have, um, in different churches, I, I've gone through some, some church, we've had some tough times. We've gone through church splits. And it's really hurtful. It's agonizing. It's painful. And I, I, I just, I've just been thinking about you guys this week and, and, and praying for you that God would give you grace to heal. And that he would give you grace to heal and and he would just give you grace as well. Just as I know you see these verses and you read them, that God would just give you grace to display Christ in any possible way to those who have hurt you over the years. And I want to say that is not easy. (laughs) It is not easy. When you're wounded and people talk smack to you, they put you down, they throw shade, however you want to say it. And I'm just going to pray, and my hope is that you would, that God would use you so mightily that when people hear about Calvary Bible Church, when they, when they hear what you're about, they say, whoa, those people overcome our evil with good. The, those people, the, 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 they, 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 they sing these songs about this man named Jesus. And I, I've heard about Jesus, but, but the way they live their lives, that there, there's something about them. They, they, they care for me, and all I did was talk down on them. When I was in need, they cared for me. What is it about those people? And then may, by God's grace, you could point them to Jesus. Is Jesus worth it enough for you? You know, this is practically one of the ways that you could do this every day before you get in your car. And when, not that this, you shouldn't pray at home, right? But before you say you go to the store, you go to work. Ask the Lord, Lord, help me to walk in the Spirit. Help me today to bear the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What's the very first one? Love. Lord, when I go to work, help me to conduct myself in love. Help me to go in there and think either if you're the, the boss or you're an employee. Lord, how can I overcome evil with good? How can I look for the needs of others? Lord, give me eyes to see, so to speak, any need that I can see. Before you come to church, Lord, give me eyes to see how I can minister to the needs of the other. There's somebody here that needs something. What can I do to minister to them? This is the mindset of Jesus. He always cared for others. He was looking out for their good. And this is how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. Calvary Bible Church, if this is your prayer and your ambition, and maybe like Jonathan Edwards, your resolution, you can turn this world upside down for Christ. You can give them a picture of the greatness of Jesus, and there'll be no blurring of the lines.
back in 2009, I had the privilege of going to the Philadelphia Phillies-Los Angeles Dodgers playoff game. And a friend of mine up in Santa Clarita, he called me up and he says, Hey, John, he said, I got four tickets to the Phillies-Dodgers game. Do you want to go? And I said, no, I don't want to go. No, it's good. All right. So <clears throat> I said, sure. And uh, this is back in 2009. Cole Hamels was pitching against Clayton Kershaw. And the, the gentleman I went with, he evidently, he, he, I don't know, he must have spent an awful lot of money because we, we sat right behind the Dodgers dugout. And uh, it was, so I, of course, I'm wearing my Chase Utley jersey. I know he was a Dodger at one point, but I was wearing a Chase Utley jersey. And I'm there, and, and my, my friend was a Phillies fan, but he also brought a couple of Dodgers fans. And uh, we had a great time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would go to the bathroom, and people would say nice things to me when I walked by them. And um, wave to them. And uh, we had a, I had a great time, right? And, and that game, the Phillies did win. Sorry, sorry, Dodgers fan. But they did win, and, 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 and everybody around me actually was somewhat, you know, they were nice in the area. So I started walking out. And I was walking out, and I saw some Phillies fans. And they were, they were surrounded by the security there. And so we saw, my jer- we saw our jerseys, right, that we had on so we could, our, our lines of who we liked were clear. And we fist pumped. And as we fist pumped, somebody came up and tried to rip my jersey off me. And one of my, my friends, who's actually a Dodgers fan, he, he smacked him away. So I walked out and I started walking out. All of a sudden, I start getting punched in the head by Dodgers fans. And it's getting drilled. And I know it's surprising because I'm so big and strong and everything that they would try to go after me. Um, and so I'm just getting drilled. And so my, my friend who bought the tickets, he, I, I told him, I said, Jack, I said, just, just keep walking, brother. The poor guy had just lost his wife to cancer. And he's like, oh, and poor guy, I just remember, he's like, I just lost my wife to cancer. I, I can't do, I can't, I can't do anything else. I, and I said, distract, I'll take it for you, man. And I don't mean it like I'm some great guy. I said, and I was just praying. And so I just, I, I, so I'm walking out, right? And this is prior to when they actually had security in the parking lot. And so we're walking out, and these guys followed me out to the parking lot, and there was this, people were talking junk to me the whole time, right? And, and, and because I was a Phillies fan. And we get out to the parking lot, and my friend, he, we, he, we, we forgot where his car was parked, right? Just the whole thing was a mess, and they were following us, right? And, and I, just, I remember texting Jamie, he just praying. She's like, what? And I didn't mean to, like, startle her, right? But um, and by God's grace, for, I don't know how, they, they, they finally left us alone. But why was I assaulted or why was I punched many times in the head? Why was my jersey take, try to be ripped off me? Because of my allegiance to whom? At that time, it was the Philadelphia Phillies. I came home and I told my wife, I said, babe, if I am ever going to be persecuted again, my hope, it's, my hope, it's only because of my allegiance to Jesus Christ. When you walk and conduct yourself like this, and you make it your aim, your ambition, to, to make it clear who your allegiance is more than anybody else, there will be persecution. But blessed is the man who is what? Who's insulted as a result of Jesus. Calvary Bible Church. My prayer, my, my, my petition to you is that you would live in such a way that those who don't know Christ 
but know you will come to know Christ because they have known you. You will live in such a way that those who don't know Christ but know you will come to know Christ because they have known you. Lord God, I thank you for your incredible grace. Lord, I beg of you that we would mimic you, that we would imitate you, that you would give us grace to do this, that we would do this in how we love. Lord, give us a passion and desire to put others before ourselves. I thank you for this church. Lord, I beg of you that you would give them grace and compassion with all the heartache they've walked through, Lord. I beg of you, Lord, that you would give them comfort with every hurt that they have experienced, Lord. I beg of you that you would, as you say, you catch all their tears in a bottle. Oh, please, please give them grace. Lord, may this church be known that they imitate you. May they never, like the church at Ephesus, forget their first love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.